0: consequence podcast network welcome back to miniography a consequence podcast network production i'm your host dominic suzanne mayer i'm the head film editor at consequence of sound and i'd like to introduce my guests for this episode
2: i'm caroline Sita.
1: i'm clint worthington
0: where do you both write at
2: Oh, I write for the A.V. Club, Consequence of Sound, The Spool, (gasps) uh, all over the place, really.
1: And I also write for The Spool because I made it. It's mine. Um, But I'm also a senior writer for film and TV at Consequence of Sound and co-host of just a million podcasts. Just look me up.
0: So many podcasts. Um, Clint is a regular here on filmography, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is miniography. We've been doing these for a while now on the off months of the show, and while we'll have some fun announcements at the end of today's episode about things coming up in the spring, today we are here because Valentine's Day is coming. By the time you all hear this, Valentine's Day will be either here or subsequently have passed but whatever. Immerse yourself in the spirit (laughs) with us. Anyway, I put a question out on Twitter a couple of weeks ago asking people what to them was the perfect romantic comedy. I don't really have any interest in like parsing out what we would define as perfect. It's ultimately all relative, but the one consensus pick that was either somebody's immediate choice or the thing that someone jumped past in order to be creative and pick something else was 1989's When Harry Met Sally. And in that spirit, Rob Reiner's film would be the subject of our very special Valentine's discussion today. And just to jump right in, I'll leave the question to the two of you to open. After 30 years, because this July it will have been 30 years since the film's released, what do you think has contributed to its continued enduring appeal?
2: I think it's – some of it's timing. Like I think when people think of romantic comedies, it's really associated with that 90s like boom into the early 2000s. And this was like the first one to kick off that particular period. So there's certainly, I think, plenty of iconic rom-coms before this. But I don't think when people think rom-com, they aren't necessarily – immediately thinking uh like Cary grant and katherine hepburn movies so Mm -hmm. i think the the era that it kicked off and the fact that it was the first of that has like really cemented it in people's minds
1: yeah i'm willing to agree like i think there's a generational aspect to when harry met sally just because it also happens to be the kind of movie that um people our age grew up watching in terms of like that was the seminal romantic comedy and I think it obviously it stands out because, you know, the screenplay and the performances and just the, the sheer craft and everything it did for the rom-com genre. But like, yeah, I think there's just in addition to it being it, from start to finish a really solid film, there are moments within it that have just stuck in the craw of pop culture. The I all have what she's having, that kind of stuff. So I think those kinds of things have helped the film endure up to now.
0: I'd absolutely agree. And Caroline, I'm glad you brought up like the long influence of it, because when we think of the 90s romantic comedy, in a lot of respects, if you're not thinking of When Harry Met Sally, you're thinking of a movie that looks a lot like When Harry Met Sally and probably co-stars Meg Ryan. (laughs) Because among other things, this kicked off Nora Ephron's trilogy of Meg Ryan classics. She And she actually almost perfectly bookended the decades in this mm-hmm. respect. Started with this, followed it with Sleepless in Seattle, ends on You've Got Mail, all of which are some of the most well-regarded American romantic comedies of the modern era.
2: I think one thing that's interesting about When Harry Met Sally is it does this very low-key, two-people-falling-in-love thing so well that it was almost like... Everything else had to be a little bit more high concept after that. Like this is sort of the pinnacle of this particular thing. But even you look at Sleepless in Seattle, it's like the premise is they don't meet until the end. And You've Got Mail is this more like elaborate enemies to lovers thing. And so I think that there's like – As much as it feels like When Harry Met Sally did influence everything else, it also weirdly stands alone as being one of the few rom-coms that's like, we don't need any concept at all.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, and I think there is a little bit of uh, conceptual underpinning behind it, of course. But I think think you've hit on something really interesting. I think When Harry Met Sally may be the diehard of romantic comedies, Mm. where future ones had to be like When Harry Met Sally over email yeah. when Harry met Sally, you know, in a body switching scenario. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, there there are like, you know, everything since had to build on that because that was the perfect um, sort of er example of a great romantic comedy that everyone had to measure up to.
0: Well, and Caroline, in your A.V. Club column, When Romance Met Comedy, mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about how as far as that singular nature of the film goes, it feels almost more of a piece with the hangout driven indie romances of recent filmic years than it does with a lot of those really high concept, again, gimmicky comedies that followed directly in its wake. And I think it's interesting because, you know, if there's if there's any high concept hook again, it's the one that was on the poster and in all the trailers. (laughs) can platonic male
2: men and women just be friends
1: (laughs) but that's it's funny though because i mean that question is aged really interestingly too because you know as our broader cultural understanding of relationships has 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 gotten wider obviously you know like of course men and women can be friends but then there's also like a greater acceptance of sexuality and like you know uh non-traditional lifestyles and like non-traditional types of relationships too so like um When looking back on it now, it feels crystallized in this very specific heteronormative, like man woman dynamic. Not that that's a bad thing, but like I think that's very interesting.
0: Well, I think it also, in a lot of ways, was this interesting predecessor to the obsessive, like, battle of the sexes men are from Mars, women are from Venus mentality that was omnipresent in pop culture through the whole of the nineties. It predates that in a really interesting way in some respects. But the reason I brought up the gimmick of the film is that in getting into talk of the movie itself a little bit, you know, that portion, that, that aspect of the story almost feels incidental at times. They don't actually sleep together until there's just barely over 20 minutes left in the film. It's mostly played for comedy and even then, the film tends to eschew a lot of those, okay, couples having their big end of the second act falling out, we have to bring them back together. There is an efficiency and a realism to the way that it plays, even those more gimmicky beats, that is really singular.
2: Can we, wait, can we bring up the meta premise of this podcast, which is that Dom just watched this movie for the first time this morning? And so <laughs> I'm so curious to hear your, like, as we're getting into it, yeah. I'm so curious to hear your response to it. Because I feel that there are plenty of movies that I have like just missed out on, like iconic ones. And it's kind of weird to watch these things where you're like, I've seen all of these scenes cited before. And I've known the premise probably my whole life. So I'm so curious to hear how you felt about that whole experience.
0: <laughs> and it was interesting because, you know, I watched it this morning on YouTube as uh, cinema intended. <laughs> and, I, I mean, I loved it. And I'll start there with that. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And that kind of, if not muted, then certainly very, like, loping nature Mm -hmm. really took me off guard. It was the kind of thing that we usually associate more with, like, Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy. I was actually thinking about those films a lot while watching this because I think that this is a movie that very much has an ear and a sense of care For the part of love that is just two people having strange, aimless conversations that bond them closer to one another, this movie has an immaculate ear for that. Mm -hmm. And it is a romantic comedy that almost seems like it's all the footage that takes place between the big key incidents in a lesser (laughs) romantic comedy in a lot of ways. It's all the dorky conversations on their way to the big comic dinner set piece, to the big breakup sequence— the scene that killed me was the sharper image confrontation, because not only did it kill me being whisked back to a sharper image, which I <laughs> loved when I was a six-year-old at malls, but there is this really ugly, halted realism to that scene. And that's the thing. There, My macro take on it, other than it's great, because obviously it's great, is it's so understated in a way that even really big studio romantic comedies, even all these movies we've been talking about as, even oh, as yeah. the direct antecedents of when Harry met Sally, this movie is still the best at doing it.
1: Right. Like there's a grounded nature to all of it. And I, I was actually watching an interview with Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner, uh, prior to this podcast where she talked about like one of the major things she wanted to do in when Harry met Sally is to have romantic comedy With no external conflict. Like the only thing that matters. The only stakes are whether or not. They're getting together. And the only thing getting in their way. Is themselves. So like by focusing in on that. And like. By busting up the kind of typical romantic comedy thing, which is funny because it feels like this invented the romantic comedy. But like, you know, we usually associate that kind of genre with big gimmicks and big sweeping gestures and these kind of true love, true romance kind of ideas. But uh, When Harry Met Sally, in a lot of ways, is about the hard graft of building a relationship, which I think is really, really cool.
0: It is. Um, A romantic comedy of much more recent vintage that I was huge on a couple years ago was The Big Sick, Mm -hmm. and that was another film I was thinking about a lot while watching When Harry Met Sally, because in both, they're very much immersed in, like again, that messy in-between business, the effort, and especially the way in which love often takes a non-linear path that involves lots of years, sometimes other people intermittently. The occasional coma. Well, not in not in every extreme <laughs> no. example, certainly. <laughs> but you know, like these are the things that movies are not made about. These are mm-hmm. the kind of patient incidents that you have to have a really keen, observant eye to catch. And a lot of it is just how good of a screenwriter Nora Ephron was. Which, Caroline, if we're going to talk about my other big takeaway, mm-hmm. even more than Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, which I've both seen. It is weird. This is the yeah. last one I've seen of those three, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? But having seen all of them, you know, like she she just has an ear for the romantic comedy like few other people have been able to match in the years since.
2: Yeah, as Dom mentioned, I do write a column all about romantic comedies for the A.V. Club, so I spend a lot of time (laughs) thinking about (laughs) this genre. And something that I personally really value in it is is naturalism and, like, gentleness because I think that's just so appealing to watch. And I think the best romantic comedies are rooted in that, and the worst ones sort of move away from that to something that's way more heightened. And I think that there are ones that toe the line and try to have it both ways, which can sometimes be successful. Um, but, yeah, I think that this and, – and I do think it's not just this movie. Like, I think a lot of the early early 90s rom-coms were good at this gentleness and softness and naturalism. And then I do think that that's something that we're coming back to more and more nowadays. Um, yeah, it's just great. The way the way that they just capture – like, to me, my maybe my favorite scene in this whole movie is when they're trying to play Pictionary and meg ryan is sally is terrible at drawing and at some point someone's tr- trying to guess that his baby fish mouth is the answer and it's such a realistic portrayal of how bad it can be to play pictionary sometimes and that feels like such a small little well-observed moment and the whole movie's just made up of that and i do totally give um nora Ephron credit for that and I also think it, it. this is a really collaborative film, as far as I can tell. Like, I think Rob Reiner, obviously, huge influence. Billy Crystal had a huge influence. Um, and Meg Ryan. Like, I think it really was the four of them crafting this together that just, like, hit upon that magic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Like, we haven't even talked about the stars yet, too. Like, we've been focusing so much, rightly so, on the writing. But, like, that kind of stellar dialogue that threads the line between naturalism, but also hitting, like being a very technically proficient at naturalism is a rare feat. Um, so I think even, you know, even that elements, those elements work, but you have to have great cast to deliver it.
0: I'm going to say something at this time. That's going to sound really glibber jokey. And I swear, I mean it with utter sincerity, Billy Crystal is genuinely sexy in this movie in a way that is so important to it. (laughs) And I was thrown by it from minute one to minute 91.
1: Oh, yeah. Billy Crystal fucks in this movie. Yeah.
0: You know, if we're going to talk about the whole cultural notion of big dick energy for just a second, (laughs) both of the leads of the film are rife with it. There is just such a magnetic charisma sexually, intelligently across the board between and exuding from the two of them that it's ridiculous like when people talk about movie chemistry this is the kind of pairing that they're talking about
2: yeah it's so good I feel like I'm just not gonna be helpful on this podcast because my take is just like it's so good and lovely and this is a movie that I like more each time I watch it which is Mm -hmm. not always the case I think um and, yeah, I do think that there's just something – and I do think, and you were getting into this, Clint, that that there there is kind of a concept here, which is that they first meet right out of college. You're taking a road trip from Chicago to New York. They really are both very pretentious and hate each other immediately. <laughs> Five years pass, they run into each other as 26-year-olds, slightly less pretentious, still mostly hate each other. Then a couple more years pass, they're about 31, and they run into each other again, and that's when they become friends, and then the movie charts that time. Um, and I think that that length of – time that the movie's playing with like it's taking place almost like 12 years is really effective to to making their relationship feel real because we've got those early check-ins and I think in terms of the performers like it's very easy to watch this and just be like oh my gosh they're so charming and just being themselves but I think that they really are giving good performances especially in that first scene it's like the late 70s they're right out of school and that's really where the can men and women just be friends question first comes up which is mostly just like a very pretentious 22 year old guy like <laughs> having a philosophy that then i think the movie is isn't really that engaged with that's more like his dumb philosophy and the movie's like wow these people are dumb because they're 20 20- And then it's like, wow, they're dumb because they're 26. And it's like, well, they're 31, but they're still pretty dumb. But like, that's okay. We love them anyway.
1: (laughs) Well, also, Billy Crystal is stubborn. Like, his character is stubborn. So, of course, he would hold on to that philosophy. But, like, not to push back, but to build on that point about how, like, the whole can men and women just be friends thing. um, I think the the eventual takeaway from the movie is that, no, like, you don't have – men and women can be friends. But I also think in order to have a successful relationship – Men and women oftentimes have to be friends first, or at least Mm. the best relationships are born from those friendships that can grow into something more.
0: And I think even going beyond that, it's just a movie very much immersed in emotional intimacy itself. Mm -hmm. Like, more than sex, more than even, like, the convolutions of a relationship beat for beat per se, it's interesting, like, the process of building intimacy, in this really humane way it's again it's all the minute beats that like take someone from being a person you're attracted to to being like a person you want to build your whole life and future around like there there aren't a lot of movies about that facet of the process
1: mm-hmm. and even like in the climax of the film the big speech that rom-coms tend to have Billy Crystals to Meg Ryan like I think crystallizes that in a really nice crystallizes. way Billy oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, see we're hitting lightning here, folks. Um, but just like the, the reasons that he cites for wanting to be with her for the rest of their life are all these little things that bug him, but bug him in the most interesting, enticing way. And I think that's a really unconventional take on romance that a lot of movies don't do. And I think it's really like important that this one does.
2: Uh, yeah, I feel like the movies less can any set of men and women be friends and it's like can harry and sally just be friends so it's like so specific to them and they're they occasionally try to make it about other people but i think thing for the most part it's like let's capture this dynamic that i do think is very realistic of people that particularly as it sets it up um harry's just gotten out of uh, just gotten divorced and sally's just like gotten out of a long-term relationship so they're both sort of like using each their friendship as this sort of like fill in emotional thing before they're ready to date but then it sort of becomes like more convoluted uh and less healthy as it goes along so i think it's so rooted in the specifics of their dynamic that it it has great things to say about them i don't know if it is even trying necessarily to say things about the human race in general of
0: course of course well yeah because they're such specific people too which is the other and i again boomerang back around to the actors once more because we really can't sleep on their impact on this you know like I really like your point, Caroline, about the whole idea of, like, watching someone change. And I think part w- part of what's crucial about that is, like, part of becoming more attracted to somebody is watching them get over things that used to be yeah. aggravating about them. Like, everyone has known 22-year-old Billy Crystal at the beginning of When Harry Met Sally, if you were not a young man who was him, which a lot were, then you definitely <laughs> knew one much like him. And that guy can grow up to be absolutely insufferable or he can grow up to like eventually figure it out. And like there is something in its own way attractive about like that process of watching somebody become a better version of themselves.
1: Right. And I mean, that specificity of their individual relationship is, contra- is contrasted with a lot of really interesting other relationships in the film like their best friends mm-hmm. Bruno kirby and carrie fisher like they're so good they're so good at this but they they sort of get to have that fairy that easy fairy tale kind of relationship that harry and sally like could totally have if they sort of had you know if timing was better if they got over their respective hang-ups what have you but seeing them like you know even in the context of the four-way phone call in contrast to harry met sally harry and sally is good
0: yeah and I I love the dynamic of their friends too because it's this perfect illustration of how some pieces no matter how strange a fit they might be just click together and it's kismet and you're done from there right. and sometimes it's this more messier more circuitous process and it's a movie that has room for both of them. Because again, this is the other thing that jumped out to me. This is an incredibly benevolent movie in a benevolent world. For as much of a debt as it very clearly owes, especially in Rob Reiner's direction, to like the tone and style of Woody Allen's New York movies. Mm-hmm. There is always, like, an archness and a bitterness to the Allen films that is just not present here. The closest to that bitterness you get is, again, the collegiate navel-gazing at the very beginning of the film (laughs) that even its own characters grow out of by the 30-minute mark. Like, you don't often have a movie invite you to live in a benevolent world where nothing that bad is going to happen in this way. And there's something to be said for that.
2: And I think that's the energy of the 90s rom-com is the, that shift from things being slightly, not edgy in terms of like the content, but just like there's an edge, to, there's an emotional edge to it, to this like softer fairy tale quality that can still be grounded in realism, but sort of at the end of the day is going to be a fairy tale. And there was, I, I know, I don't know how late they talked about this into the process, but there was originally talk about having Harry and Sally not end up together, which I think would obviously make this a very different film. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, personally, I mean, I am I I like the fantasy element of rom-coms. I think that that is something that can get slammed as being quote-unquote unrealistic, which I don't really think there's a rule that films need to be realistic. Right. And I don't think that tends to get too applied to any other genre. So um, yeah, for me, the fairy tale quality is like a feature, not a bug. And I think that when Harry Metzelli captures that really well.
1: Yeah, like Harry is a very cynical character to be sure, but I think the world around him is continually committed to proving him wrong like especially with the best friend characters like even after like in the wake of his divorce there's that scene where he's like yelling about how like when you guys split up you guys are going to be arguing over like that roy rogers coffee table you better label your books now and their only reaction to be like i you know i i promise you i will never want that table um just so they they just there's just an easiness to that, and I think like that they serve as this perfect example that the film's world does not ascribe to Harry's particular brand of cynicism, which I think is really heartwarming.
2: Plus, he's so charming. In addition to be being cynical too, yeah, He's Like let's yeah. sing karaoke at the store. Like let's do these weird pepekish voices at the museum. <laughs> yeah, like right. he's a very goofy. It's a is an in, it's an interesting and I think insightful mix of like goofiness and cynicism. That feels very true, and I think it, it keeps – it's easy, I think, for both of the characters to sort of feel like stock archetypes, especially because they're so easy to parody. Like, the specific way Meg Ryan orders is, like, the go-to thing to parody in a rom-com. But I think when you actually watch the film, they it feels more like the organic quirks of these two largely three-dimensional people. It's only when you take it out of that context that I think it becomes, like – very easy to joke about.
1: Yeah, they're just like defense mechanisms basically for Harry, it seems like. And then mm-hmm. they gradually get worn away.
0: Well, and all of their idiosyncrasies are, yeah, they're functions of character entrenched in who they are as people. There's this sense through the whole movie that Crystal brings out really well that Harry doesn't actually believe a solid majority of what he's yeah. saying. Mm-hmm. Except for like when he's genuinely heartbroken, there's something very earnest and like from deep about those emotions. But aside from that, there's this overarching sense that like, Harry really wants to be proven wrong, as kind of the flip side to what you were saying a moment ago, Clint. Like, he wants to believe that everything he's saying is bullshit, and that there kind is... kind of a
1: challenge to the world around him. Exactly. Me,
0: really. And then, as the perfect foil, you have Meg Ryan, who, for all of her great work under Nora Ephron's scripts, had never did it better than she does in this film... Mm-hmm who just exudes the kind of nervous energy that you can tell is a tractor beam for him, even as neither of them realize it. Mm -hmm. Again, these are people who you want to see together, not because of a series of dramatic contrivances, but because they have earned you Mm -hmm. wanting to see them end up together by the end of it. And you do all of this in an hour and a half, which (laughs) is just mind-boggling to me.
2: Yeah, it's a very short... I had forgotten how short it was until I watched it the other night. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't feel that way. And I think it is because of those time jumps, which I'm just really stuck on that because I think for a film that like a lot of people who weren't old enough to see it when it came out. Like you, this is probably something you watched on cable when you were fairly young, even though I was actually shocked. It's R, it's an R rated film. Do we know this? Yeah. R yeah. yeah. rated some... film. I'm pretty sure. Cause they say fuck twice. That makes it an R rated film, even <laughs> <laughs> though it is not worthy of that rating. Uh-huh.
0: A woman achieves a version of climax on screen in a movie. That alone I'm is a hard so. R yeah. in yeah. America. <laughs> it could have just
2: um, been a
1: really good sandwich, Dom.
2: <laughs> but I think that when you watch this when you're young, I feel like you can kind of miss how much it's a commentary on them aging. Like, that to me is mm-hmm. what really, really stuck out to me on this most re- most recently rewatch. And as I am getting, like, very close to the age that they are for the main plot of the film, like... I don't know. It just really struck me. And and one of the thing I love is how much they can't remember the conversations that they had. Like, they're like, did I say that? I didn't say that about men and women can be friends. And she's like, I didn't say that about the end of Casablanca, which I think is so accurate. Like, you really are such a different person in your late 20s, or early 30s than you are right out of college or when you're in your, you know, 21, 22. And then, like, it's very smart about that. And because it has those time leaps, it can do a lot in 90 minutes because we have ostensibly spent so much time with the characters. They've spent so much time with each other we don't need like hours and hours and hours to develop all that
0: and in, and yet in the exact same breath what you would consider the plot of the movie yeah. the main dramatic thrust doesn't start until 30 minutes into the 90 minute movie mm-hmm. The efficiency of time and what is accomplished minute to minute, like just for efficiency, if nothing else, is kind of astounding.
1: Right, and going back to Caroline's earlier point about the time jumps too, I think the, just the performances in particular, like uh, that, Crystal and Ryan do such a great job of subtly weaving in these different layers of like they show the age of the characters. Like, there's that youthful naivete and yeah. the in the road trip, and then slightly more world weariness from the airport on, and then yeah, and then once they're living together, like once they're like both. living in New York as adults. And, you know, they they just have this settled, they're settled into Mm -hmm. their identities at this point, but they still have those moments of leaping back to their more childlike natures almost.
0: Well, and as we transition a little bit into the second half of our discussion, I want to kind of keep this in mind because in terms of how this is accomplished, we've talked a lot about cast and writing so far, but we're going to get into the technical nitty gritty of it now. And in talking cinematography and editing, one of the things that I really wanted to bring up at this time that I kind of held off on until this point in the show was the use of the cutaways throughout Mm -hmm. the movie. Mm -hmm. They open, they close, and they serve as kind of a functioning Greek chorus throughout the action of older couples telling real stories, though not told by the people who actually lived them out. It was actors telling real stories. And they're all stories of how love stories began, which I think serves this really interesting function in the movie because it then makes When Harry Met Sally transparently a movie about people who are fated to end up together Mm. and then asks you to invest in wondering whether they will.
1: Mm -hmm. Does that mean that the cutaways essentially function like a Chantix commercial? Oh God! <laughs> We're not talking
0: about Ray Liotta or Chantix on this episode uh, anymore, fine, Clint. Moving fine. on.
1: All right, but no, I do think that those are those are such a wonderful cutaway because I think it it grounds you quickly in a more realistic, um, you know, nuanced vision of relationships for this romantic comedy than you would normally get, um, because you can tell right away that it's about just real people and real stories and the kind of. The kind of tale where it's going to take time to build a relationship and it's not about the fairy tale, you know, meet cute kind of thing. And yeah, I just I really, really, I really dig those uh, scenarios. I didn't know that they were done by actors. I thought it was uh, just the people.
2: It's a common misconception. Yeah. But, yeah. but the
0: stories are real. The stories are real. Right. Which is very cute. <laughs> yeah, true. And even in the way that so many of them are delivered, Reiner frames them very actively throughout, as like these archetypal episodes of how love is built in this really cool way. It's
2: interesting that they're almost all, if I'm remembering correctly, like older people, which I think part of the movie, like it is rooted in the late 80s in the sense of like a lot of the like gender dynamics and like, what's it like to be a woman in the 80s? And can men and women be friends now? This is crazy. <laughs> but on the other hand, it feels timeless and maybe even less than timeless. Like it's trying to be like in the 40s, which we get that in the score. But I think with the... um the fact that if they're all like older couples, it's like calling back to this older romantic version of New York. And, like, a simpler time and these really sweet, like, oh, I just met her once and then we got married and we've been married for 50 years. And isn't that crazy? And that sort of ties into the, like, now we have a younger couple, but they still have that, like, older sensibility to them.
1: Right. And I guess we get the implication because they're all such older couples that, like, for lack of a better term, their stories are finished. Like, this is their Mm -hmm. complete love story. And we're going to see over the course of the film how Harry and Sally get there.
2: Yeah. But they're not there's a good amount of like I think those could be too sentimental, but there's a couple of good mm-hmm. ones where it's like we married, we got divorced, I married five other people, and then we got married right. again. like there there's some that are like funny and cynical and weird, and that helps it from being too much of a like a yeah, totally. way too sentimental.
0: Well, I completely agree. And if we're going to talk about, um, like the look of an older New York, then I think at least briefly we have to talk about when New York plays itself. <laughs> because this is yet another movie that is very much steeped in that, like, twinkling romance of the city milieu. Mm-hmm. Um, Efron's work would return to that again with her two other 90s films. But. In this film in particular, it feels like it's functioning in a lot of ways as a counterpoint to a lot of the New York movies that it's invoking. Because where a bunch of those were built around the presumption that, you know, love is hard and may not always make it. The Annie Hall example Mm -hmm. is kind of one of the ultimate emblematic ones. This is a movie about how you can go through all of those things and there's still a happy ending. And the one thing I do have to laugh about is that if we were talking a bit ago about a heightened reality Mm -hmm. and how it relates and doesn't relate to When Harry Met Sally, the streets and parks of New York City have never (laughs) been emptier than they are throughout this movie, which I actually love because it's this visual trick that situates them like they're the only people in each other's Mm -hmm. world. And I think that's cute.
1: Well, I think they're wonderful, subtle clues to the eventual realization that this is taking place after the apocalypse. (laughs)
2: There is at the end when it's like the big, you know, big climactic running to the New Year's Eve party. And Billy Crystal's walking around and he he literally says in a narration, like, it's so nice that I'm walking around and the streets are empty because, of course, <laughs> the streets are empty on New Year's Eve. And I'm like, people would be vomiting all around him. It's like, the- even if you're not in Times Square, I'm pretty sure the streets are not empty in New York City.
1: It's that Thanos. for living in a New York after <laughs> yeah, the snap.
2: It does kind of feel Harry like and that. and Sally
1: were two of the people that made it. Uh,
2: but I do agree. And I really like with your point, Dom, about how... The emptiness, as silly as it is, it is really beautiful to watch and it's often framed where they seem very small in the um, screen and you're getting like Washington Square Park behind them or the Met behind them And, and they, I don't know, it's an interesting, like it is intimate. It's a weird mix of it feels like, oh, they're in this, like, cavern all around them, but that, Uh like, only increases the intimacy in a way. It
1: makes them feel like they're part of the city, but they're not crowded by it. You know what I mean? I I think, especially, like, contrasting them with, like you said, the architecture of the city. I think it helps. It it provides a wonderful background for these two people who are existing and have their own lives. And it sort of feels like in the background they still have all these other concerns that they have to worry about, all these other elements to their life. Um, But... At the end of the day, they are just sort of two people alone in a park talking to each other.
2: It's also so helpful, since it is such a plot-free film, largely. It's very helpful to just have, I mean, it's weird to call them set pieces, like location pieces. And then sometimes just, like, activities for them to do. They're very clever about, like, now they're figuring out which way to place a rug. And now it's just like these little things that are so realistic, but not necessarily the kind of things that you just see placed in a movie when like the rug doesn't, there's no plot point to the rug. This is not a metaphor. Like it's not really going to (laughs) come up as anything. It's just like a realistic thing you would do with your friend. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They went to a museum and had a weird conversation awkwardly in like an echoey space. Like, yeah, it just, it finds, it finds angles to attack the romantic comedy that no one's really, I've, that I've seen has really tried before or since in the way they're presented here. For one I mean, we've talked a lot about Reiner as director. I also want to shout out Barry Sonnenfeld here, who, after filming this, would go on to direct things like both Adams Family movies and also Men in Black.
2: Pretty natural progression, you can really see I would it. say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can
0: really see it in his... Muted... Hey, Men in
2: Black is a New York movie, so uh, that's where he got it
0: from? And another is terrific New an York LA movie. Yeah, that's true. Wait, is it LA? No, it it's New, New York. York. Right? Okay, it's good. a New yeah. York good, good, good. movie. But honestly, the way Sonnenfeld frames them, too, it is such a trust evidenced from Reiner to his actors because Ryan and Crystal in a lot of ways are tasked with carrying the whole movie in the visual sense, you know, like it this is traditional movie star filmmaking where you are looking straight on at these people relying on them to be the ma- magnetism in these otherwise very still, often even static frames I mean, the famous Katz's delicatessen sequence is really just like a three-shot progression in one location. They don't get up and leave their seats or do anything especially demonstrative besides the obvious. And then the scene's over. In blocking terms, it's the simplest thing in the world. And yet, what I just described is also one of the most famous comic mm-hmm. set pieces in any American film.
1: Right, and I think there's something to be said. I think we, whenever we talk about like great cinematography and stuff, sometimes it can be... We can overvalue flashy cinematography at times. Mm-hmm. But I think Agreed. when Harry Met Sally, there's, there's something to be said for the value in just straight up filming it and making it look easy, you know? And that, like you said, we, we, it allows us to focus on the actors and the performances, but it also does its job very well. So it's sort of like a, you know, it's, you know, ostensibly journeyman's work. It's not like Sonnenfeld was putting his stamp on it. It's like someone looked at that as like, I want this guy to do my Adams Family movie. Um, but it's it's still a very handsome, uh, you know, handsomely presented and it does the job that it needs to do.
0: Well, yeah, and I even love that, especially talking about Sonnenfeld's work, talking also about Robert layton the film's editor. The way that the film lingers on certain beats mm-hmm. is another thing that's really great about it. And I think really adds to the naturalism that we've been discussing throughout this show. Because in the case of that naturalism, you know, a lot of it is the little moments like when one of them will hug the other and in an entirely different conversation is playing out on one of their faces while the other one can't see it. Like they only drop the act when the other one isn't looking. There are a bunch of little nuances like that. That quick little cutaway after Crystal freaks out in his friend's apartment and runs outside in a huff. And then Carrie Fisher just turns to her husband-to-be and goes, I will never let you keep that coffee table. (laughs) Just It's, (laughs) again, the little notes. We keep coming back to the little notes as kind of this motif of discussion. But these are the things that I would argue sets this apart. These are the things that makes this movie special.
2: Yeah, it's just also well observed and well, I don't know, it's just like perfect. (laughs) It just really feels like a very perfect film. And I think think that's rare. And I think sometimes, not that this film, I mean, obviously this film is greatly appreciated. So it's maybe not an example of the rom-com being underestimated. But I do think sometimes, sort of like what you're saying with cinematography, like if something isn't flashy or serious in the traditional sense, it can be undervalued. And I think that that tends to happen a lot of times with romantic comedies in general, like to speak about the broader genre. But when that's done really well, that's as difficult to do as staging some really impressive, you know, violent action scene or whatever the case may be.
1: Right. Mundanity is kind of, uh, you know, underestimated in terms of like it being an incredibly difficult thing. It's a really hard thing to like stage a great scene in a bookstore. I have to imagine, you know, from whether it's blocking cinematography editing it crafting a performance in a cramped space where the audience's eye could so easily be drawn to just a bunch of other products in the background behind actors like you have to do so much work on so many different levels to make something like that work so the fact that when Harry Met Sally has like scenes like the sharper image one and the bookstore scene like so many scenes happen in like everyday retail. This is retail romantic comedy. Yeah. Um, and it's the fact that they work so well is a, a testament to, to all of that craft.
0: I'd strongly agree. And before we move on, in the spirit of filmography, we always talk the lasting image. One single image from the film that really sticks out to you as exceptional for one reason or another. And I'll kick us off as obvious as it is, and I'm probably even bordering on cheating here, the very last shot in which the final cutaway to the couple's origin story is, of course, Harry and Sally sitting next to each other, bickering like an old married couple already. It is just such a serene, lovely image. I love that the entire movie concludes on a nonsense conversation about coconut cake. It and is about just, things
2: on the side. I really, lo- I really love that moment where he's like, Things being on the side is very big for you. That yeah. <laughs> really stuck out to me. And then that's the last thing is her being like the chocolate sauce has to be on the side because it's gonna. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: But what about the two of you? Where would you land with this one?
1: Well, this may come up. This may come across as hypocritical, given that I just um, waxed rhapsodic about how well this movie handles mundanity and sort of the everyday, sort of like cinematographic image of just having actors on a screen but i think i really i really enjoy the showiest visual moment of the film which is the four-way phone call um because i think it's just such a triumph of not just the screenplay and the performance because imagine rehearsing that imagine i was thinking
2: that and imagine filming it like the timing of it is so impeccable and they're not all in the room together maybe they were you know off stage when they were filming it or whatever off camera when they were filming it but like the yeah. timing is so impressive. It's an
1: absolute triumph of, of, of like you said, like screenwriting and timing and performance. And then that wonderful look of like the the overlapping split screens and like, you know, moving characters in and out as needed. Um, it's just such a great, great little image. And it's a great indicator of like the dynamic, not just Harry and Sally have, but the four of them have. And I just, it's one of my favorite moments in the movie.
2: You mentioned it earlier, Dominic, but I really love the... Um First New Year's Eve scene. Well, I love the other New Year's Eve scene as well, (laughs) but the first one where they're dancing and and you get the shot of their faces, which feels like the moment of like, oh no, (laughs) like it's you know up until then it's been like yeah this has been a positive friendship to help me get over a breakup, and that feels like the moment where obviously them sleeping together later is like the the mega plot turning point, but that earlier dancing feels like the emotional turning point of like oh this is not the healthy friendship that it started out being, like it's morphed into something else and I don't quite know what to do about that. And the fact that it is silent and not really directly commented upon and that they're both having it at the same time, I think is a really nice touch. It's not like, oh no, one falls in love with the other and will the other one fall back in love with them? It's sort of like, it almost like shows how in sync they are that they're both having this crisis (laughs) at the same time. Um, And then I do think that that obviously... It so helps the then actual climax of the love confession at the New Year's Eve party because we've got those little like parallel. It's like they had a year of becoming friends. And then they had a year of being like, what's happening? And then it all, you know, has that like perfectly earned final speech. that's just perfect.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As we jump over into sound then, I do want to go back to a point that both of you alluded to earlier in the episode, which is like the sense of timelessness that emerges from the music. Because as I mentioned to both of you off air before we started recording, you know, for me and sake of full disclosure, listeners, I'm 30 now. I was very very young when when Harry Met Sally came out but through my entire childhood Harry Connick Jr.'s soundtrack was a mainstay (laughs) and and I'm sure I'm not the only one who experienced this, this was a double platinum record back when movie soundtracks that weren't Black Panther went double platinum (laughs) all the time and it's a very interesting thing because this was absolutely off trend with other films of the time and yet once again going back to the film's sense of influence this would become the standard for like the next 15 years minimum
2: yeah and it really does it you know i think it would be so easy for this movie to feel very dated because in many ways it is obviously just like costuming like we talked about some of the gender role stuff but that soundtrack coupled with i think the interviews with the other older couples like it really just feels like a movie out of time like for some as much as this like frank sinatra big band music is so linked to a specific time and yet the word i always want to associate with it is timeless. Like yeah. for some reason we, I feel like as a culture have just decided that any of those standards, just like that automate that, that means that this is timeless and it really works so well in here. And Harry Connick jr is great. And I would listen to him or watch him all day. Like one of our greatest yeah. creators, triple, triple threat, <laughs> true, triple threat.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I think maybe one, cause I agree with you that it feels weirdly of a time of a specific time and also timeless. I think maybe that's because it, at least part of the reason is it's so easy to listen to. It's just mm-hmm. so just winning and agreeable. Like it's just so relaxing to listen to. Just these old love ballads. And it, it I think it deliberately con- it deliberately contrasts obviously with the very modern contemporary urban problems that Harry and Sally are having where sort of they're, they're balancing these um, you know different priorities different worldviews. they're living in a world where divorce for instance is much more common mm-hmm. so that's another element too because i yeah, think like this is also this is also a movie we sort of haven't touched on where it i feel like it, it's one of the first big movies to really talk about divorce in a in a fascinating in an everyday way where it's not like a big scandal it's just it's something that happens to a lot of couples and this is the struggles of people moving on from divorce and so um, in, t- in bringing it back to the soundtrack, I think um, having this very modern, complicated, messy, uh, at times, romance contrasted with the kind of music that you would associate with lifelong loves and fairy tale mm-hmm. romances
0: And in its own functioning way, then, it normalizes that. It makes it another part of the love story canon, just like anywhere else. Exactly. This is a love story full of divorce and sex and all these other things that were once the height of taboo in the culture Mm -hmm. that are now just, you know, this is part of how love begins. Mm
1: -hmm. But enough about Harry Connick Jr.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We never have enough about Harry Connick Jr. That's true.
2: Never.
1: Bring back Copycat.
0: But (laughs) on the note of Copycat, Christ, Clint... (laughs) um i was going to ask before we start wrapping things up here do either of you have any parting thoughts you'd like to impart on the subject of 1989's when harry met sally
1: i'm gonna go out on a limb here and give my hot take it's a really good movie (laughs) that people should watch if you haven't watched it in a while or at all you see (laughs) if you somehow made it
0: three decades in american pop culture and never saw it
1: watch it as soon as you can with your significant other slash pet
2: I think it's also a movie it's it is so hard we talked about this before when something is so iconic to just be able to revisit it with a fresh slate and fresh eyes and particularly it's like you just when you see a lot of these things out of context like the orgasm scene or whatever like it's easy to be like oh that movie's corny and dumb but I think when you actually sit down and re-engage with it it's just so well put together and so smart in all of its choices and so humanistic and so well performed like I don't know if we said it enough, but <laughs> Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal are just so great. They're so great together. They're so great apart. And I think, particularly with Crystal, maybe less so with Ryan, but, like, that's not the typical idea of a leading man. And it really mm-hmm. shows that, like, sometimes the best romantic leads are the people that are not what you would think of as the traditional hunks. And I think more rom com should embrace that. I feel like in the 2000s, we got into too many, like, too particularly with the men. It's like attractive, but very boring men. And you would always rather watch a slightly less hunky, way more interesting character than the reverse, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, So yeah, I think it's a movie that really holds up, not just as sort of like a piece of film history, but as a film that is just as engaging to watch today as it was when it was released.
1: But still that scene where Billy Crystal takes his shirt off to reveal his glistening abs. I think like so (laughs) many romantic comedies, uh... so many romantic comedies have built from that scene.
0: I, I don't. I don't have a way out of there. I tried. <laughs> I tried so fucking hard for a minute there to have a good segue out of Billy Crystal's glistening abs, and I think we're just going to have. This those, is why let, I'm here. This let is why them here. sit and shimmer as they may. <laughs> um, with that having been said, I want to thank you both so much for joining me to this week. I want to thank Cat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all the continued support at the Consequence Podcast Network. We're going to be back in March with another miniography. The only reason I'm going to play coy for now about what it's going to be is because we might have something really cool happening if all the chips fall down. So stay tuned to our Facebook slash Filmography podcast for more announcements to that effect. We also have our April theme for the next full season of Filmography Locked. We'll be announcing that on next month's episode as well. So stay tuned. You can also leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Podchaser, or wherever else you find your fine podcasts. As always, you can find me on Twitter at D. Suzanne Mayer, and you can find all of my work at consequenceofsound.net. Where can the people of the internet find you too?
2: You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Sita. And if you are a rom-com fan, which I'm assuming you are, considering you just listened to an entire podcast about what Harry met <laughs> Sally, you can specifically find me writing a column called When Romance Met Comedy for the EV Club, where I dig into the genre one film at a time, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. Um... Yeah, that's it. That's all for me.
1: So that's why it's called that.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And it's an homage to this movie. Oh, funny. There you go. Um,
1: You can find me on Twitter at Clint Worthing. You can also find my writing at consequenceofsound.net, as well as thespool.net, and my podcastery work over at thespool.net, and nathanraben.com, where I co-host his podcast.
0: As a reminder as well, we are not the only CPN podcast you can listen to and enjoy. If you know, then you know. And if you don't, you can also check out The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, Halloweenies, which just began its new series on the Nightmare on Elm Street films. You can also listen to The Opus, to Kyle Meredith With, and to This Must Be The Gig, as well as other current and upcoming CPN content. You can find Consequence of Sound on Twitter at Consequence and Facebook slash Consequence of Sound. Miniography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast content at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer, and we'll see you all in March. Oh, and also, happy Valentine's Day.